0: Please turn with me in Revelation to chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one, and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear him and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for ever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having his, on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat under the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. The time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, for 1,600 furlongs. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. We come to Revelation chapter 14. Now, Revelation chapter 14 begins with the stirring picture of the great company of the redeemed, the 144,000 standing with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion. And we asked the question, who are they and how did they get there? And so we went through some of the characteristics of the redeemed, how it is they came, and what it is that they do and, and say and think. And the last of those characteristics was that they hear the gospel. That's how, that was the sort of instrumental cause of their coming. We know, Lord, that we know that the Lord uh, has put their, his elective, sovereign love upon them but they believe the gospel well we also know that these people they have the the mark of the father on them they have the mark of god on their forehead and these are in polar opposition to those who have the mark of the beast because that was what we saw in the previous chapter so there are those who do not have this mark they have a different mark they have the mark of the beast on them these people, they didn't receive the gospel. These people, that under the threat, the slightest threat of persecution, they gladly received the mark of the beast. They gladly fell in with this false worship, the worship of the Antichrist. They did not want to be persecuted, and they received this mark. So the question is, what happens to them then? These who have escaped the persecution that the world... And the devil and the false, uh, the the antichrist and the false prophet—all that could be thrown at them—they've—they've they've escaped that sort of persecution. Well, what's going to happen to them eventually? Well, to sum it up, they're going to experience the wrath of God in hell. That is what this latter portion of the chapter is about. It is. A description of the wrath of God. Now, not only does it come to us in the word of God, but in particular it comes as the proclamation of angels. As we see in verses 6 and verses 8 and verses 9, we have the proclamation of these three angels. And they're sort of an escalating reality. First a warning, and then the reality of the the final day has come, the judgment upon (coughs) Babylon. Babylon. And then a description of that awful, eternal judgment of God in hell. Now the characteristics, the aspects of the wrath of God in hell that are given to us are that one, hell is the wrath of God poured out full strength. Because of course there is such a thing as a foretaste of the wrath of God as Romans chapter 1 tells us about, or the pictures in the history of the church. We've had these foretastes of the wrath of God, but in hell, it is poured out full strength. And another characteristic is that hell is the wrathful presence of God. There is much um, uncertainty and confusion on that issue, but this chapter makes it absolutely clear that hell happens in the wrathful presence of God And that third, hell is forever. So these three points on the wrath of God in hell. Hell is the wrath of God poured out full strength. Hell is in the wrathful presence of God, and hell is forever. So first, hell is the wrath of God poured out full strength. In verse 9 it says, Then a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wrath, the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now, just as an overview to this, we've probably spoken on this in the past, but you think of the attributes of God, and you begin with the absolute essential, the central element of the of who God is that is repeated over and over again and is certainly repeated here in Revelation again What, uh, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The thing that is most proclaimed when God reveals himself to, uh, to Moses he proclaims the name of the Lord which is holiness and when he reveals himself to Isaiah it is holy, holy, holy and when he opens the, the, uh, the curtains and we can see the heavenly throne room it is holy, holy, holy Holiness is at the central the, the center of who God is. it is necessary, it is essential, it is manifested at all times and in every way there is, no, there is no situation, there is no person to which this holiness of God is not being manifested and has not been manifested throughout all eternity. Now that holiness, of course, goes in different directions from that holiness, then we have something that is not so completely uniform, and that is justice. Of course, God's justice is absolute, but that justice is not manifested. For instance, it is not really being manifested in eternity. He, the father does, does not need to display his justice toward the son. Uh, the justice of God is not being dis- was not displayed initially in the Garden of Eden. There is no wrong to be put right. There is no sin to be punished. There is no, uh, although the holiness was was just as perfect, yet there is no injustice. There is no sin to correct. And then, as a further step, then there is the wrath of God. There is holiness, there is justice, and there is this wrath. And wrath is only manifested in the presence of sin. There was no wrath of God at all displayed in eternity. There is certainly, holiness. But wrath is that aspect of his holiness as the object in in view is a sinner or a sin. And there the wrath of God is poured out. If any sinner stands in the presence of a holy God and there is nothing to cover his sin, there the wrath of God is being poured out. Now, I would say that our problem in understanding the wrath of God has something to do with the fact that we've never really seen it poured out full strength. And that's what my my thesis here is, that that hell is the wrath of God being poured out full strength. We have seen little bits here and there, but we've never seen it poured out full strength. The only place... Well, you know, first of all, let's, let's think of the things in which we haven't seen it. You know, when even in Adam and Eve... Here we said, there's no wrath manifested whatsoever. And then they sin. Well, what happens? Well, certainly we see justice in them being cast out. We see justice in this curse being put. Not just on on Eve. Not just on Adam. Not just on the the serpent. But on the whole created reality. Anything that had anything whatsoever. Involvement in their sin whatsoever. The curse of God is put on it. That is justice. And there is a foretaste of God's wrath. But by no means did we see it pour, poured out full strength. Not on Pharaoh. As we see these, these plagues of escalating intensity. Being poured out. From something very minor. To the destruction of the whole countryside. To darkness itself. To the death of the firstborn. But even that is not full strength. We see it maybe a little bit more. In the great flood. And, and God uh, destroying for the sake, not arbitrarily, but for the sake of the increase of sin and injustice in this world, he destroys the world with the exception of those on Noah's Ark. But even there, in the seas, living things remain. All the things on dry land, the only ones that remained were those who were put in the Ark, but yet in the seas, the great many of the creatures remained. I suppose the closest thing that we've ever seen to it, at least in a physical picture, was in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this in Genesis nineteen, twenty four to twenty eight. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. And in verse twenty eight it goes on, then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah toward all the land of the plain, and And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And here we have this picture somewhat of hell rising like a furnace. Now, has anyone ever visited these cities as a tourist? Has anyone gone and seen Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, no, probably not. Because as best we can tell, you can't. they are underneath the dead sea a place that is un- uninhabitable not just for human beings uh, not just for fish not just for seaweed but for the most part even for microbes that's why they call it the dead sea you know it's a notable thing when there's a great when there's a, a lot of water being poured into the dead sea and that allows some algae to grow into it When that allows some microbes to be, but on the normal, uh, with the exception of, of those times or the few underground springs, which I think are kind of a picture of God's mercy in the midst of such wrath, other than that, it's so inhospitable, not even bacteria are alive in the Dead Sea. That is a picture of God's wrath on these cities. It is total, it is complete and it is everlasting it's been poured out full strength but even with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah is a physical picture and we know that God's wrath is not just physical but it is also spiritual and in that sense we did not see it we did not understand the fullness of it the only one who has really tasted the wrath of God full strength on earth, of course, was Christ. And maybe we see some more element of the spiritual wrath in Christ's response to what was coming in Gethsemane. Because again, we're not, we can't see it. That was the physical picture. That's the, the picture that we should have in mind when we think in our minds of what the wrath of God looks like in Sodom and Gomorrah. But as regard to what happens in the soul... In God's wrath, which may well be the greater component of his wrath, that which we cannot see. The clue that we ought to have to it is in Christ's anticipation of the wrath of God being poured out on him full strength in Gethsemane. And how does he respond? And look, before we go on, you have to understand that this was no weak man, this Carpenter's son, this one who had managed to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, and it was not based on any superhuman strength. He was an ordinary man. But he, in his utter and complete self-control, was a perfectly strong man, as we know. He was the strong man, able to bind Satan. And all the things that he saw... he, he, in, in this lifetime that he was able to stare down and did not cause him any great discomfort. We don't read of where he lost sleep over this or that or the other, that, oh no, maybe Herod's going to try to come get him. He, he mocks Herod. He, you go tell that fox. He doesn't mind that sort of thing. He's not scared about that. Well, then mark the time and place where he is scared, where he is losing sleep where he is very much shaking in his boots. What is it? It says in Mark 14, 33, And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He is shrinking from this. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Take this cup away from me. This awful cup of your wrath. of The wrath of God which he knew was going to be poured out on him, full strength. No shield, no mitigation, no mere picture of it, not just in its physical aspects, but in its totality. And likewise in Luke 22:43, as he responds to that, and the father sends an angel, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, But even still in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Again, this man who had raised Lazarus from the grave, so I don't think he is afraid of the physical idea of dying. You almost see him waving his hand as he says in John 19 to Pilate. Pilate says, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered... You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. You see, I think that Jesus actually knew and actually experienced the very words that he gave to us in Luke 12. And he says, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. He wasn't, was he? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. I think he knew of what he spoke. I think he was experiencing at that very moment in Gethsemane. He was not fearing Pilate. He was fearing the one who was going to subject his soul to the unmitigated wrath of God poured out full strength. And I think from that we must arrive in our understanding of this wrath of God. I just mentioned a couple of other elements of what we then see on the cross. This picture of darkness. You know that the idea of light. um, We are thankful for the light. We are rightly, some people are more afraid of the darkness than others and We say it's a particular phobia, but I don't know. I don't know if it's so terribly unhealthy to have some level of fear of darkness. We know that in eternity there will be no darkness whatsoever. Night and day, the holiness of Christ emanating has its physical manifestation of there being no darkness at all. But rather we see then a picture of God's wrath and darkness. That is one of the penultimate... Uh, plagues on Egypt isn't it darkness covering the face of the earth darkness that could be felt no one even moved or uh, got out of their place in all of Egypt because of the greatness of this darkness it was something fearful and we see then that same darkness on the cross in Luke twenty-three forty-four, it was about the 6th hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. A picture of this great darkness that happens. We've already mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah with regard to the great fire. That aspect of the wrath of God. This darkness is also this fire, this consuming fire. The holiness of God consuming that which offends him. This sin. <coughs> And, of course, the thing about it is, just like we saw in the Exodus, in, in, Ex, in uh, chapter Exodus 3, this, this, uh, this bush, this burning bush, it's burning, burning, but it's not consuming. It's not the sort of fire that just goes on for a little bit and then it goes out. It goes on and on and on and on. And so I suppose then we're seeing that which was spoken of in Jeremiah 25. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of the fury of my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. You see there's this cup. This picture of the cup of wrath. And it is a fearsome cup. And no one to whom this cup is being offered can rightly stand, they stagger at the prospect of taking this wrath of God. Well, of course, sadly, I cannot possibly do justice to this aspect of it. I cannot possibly, all I can do is is say, look at Christ. Look at Christ and think about what he experienced before and during the cross. And you have some aspect in of what this wrath of God being poured out in, in full flavor might be. Well, secondly, we have to say that hell is in the presence of God. Because that's what it says in verse 10. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's just the simple teaching of the verse. That so those who are under the beast, those who have received his mark, which means all those who are not the elect. All those who are not Christians, who have not put their faith in Christ. They will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Now, oh, what does that mean? Well, you know probably that these days, and in fact, well, it's been going on for some time, but particularly since the late Victorian times. Uh, in the late Victorian times, increasingly there was a turn away from orthodoxy in all of its forms. And the first thing to go is the wrath of God. first thing to go was an orthodox understanding of hell. This place used to be a mining community, wasn't it? And they used to have little birds, canaries or something like that, in the the mine shaft, because they're the most susceptible to the winds of change, so to speak, of of gas in the mine that was going to, or lack of oxygen. Uh, And if the canary was in bad shape, if the canary ends up dead on the ground, you better get out because there's a big problem. Well, I think the the orthodox doctrine of hell is like a canary in the mine shaft. And you can tell when the winds of change of doctrine in a church are are getting caustic and when the oxygen of of God's truth is being extinguished and when the poisonous gases of some sort of heresy are at foot because this canary of the orthodox idea of hell is going to be uh, in bad shape, if not dead. And of course uh... george MacDonald, for instance constructed an, an entire system of theology that did not have any aspect of the wrath of god he still spoke about sin he still spoke about hell but it had no aspect no nothing no connection with the idea of there being of god being wrathful and in our own day we have an evangelical man steve chalk talking about cosmic child abuse why because he doesn't like the idea of the wrath of god and so he thinks that the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement, of God pouring out his wrath on Christ in the cross is something terrible. Because wrath is fearsome. We need, not, we need not imagine otherwise. Of course it's fearsome. Of course it's something that we don't embrace in our, as our natural human beings. We don't love such a thing. But it's true. And the word of God says it without reservation. Now, the specific aspect that I want us to consider in this false idea of hell is that we are just simply removed from God's presence. The definition of hell that is going around today, and in some, in some pretty good churches actually, is that you're just put out of the presence of God. And, and because God is a source of all good things, if you're out of his presence then it is by this mere negation of these good things that that's why hell is so terrible. Well, I do not deny in the slightest that God is the source of all good things. And I do not deny in the slightest that the greatest blessing we could possibly have is to be in the loving presence of God. But let's take it step by step, shall we? First of all, there's a the simple fact that God is omnip- uh, omnip- uh, omnip- uh, omnipresent. He's present everywhere. How could he not be present in hell? It's a silly idea. There is not a single place in the universe where God is not present. You can't be cast out of the presence of God in some absolute sense. <laughs> Psalm 139.7 says, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. See, he's there. You can't be absolutely cast out of the presence of God because there's nowhere in the universe you can possibly go. But what is possible is to be cast out of his beneficent presence. You see, there are these two aspects of God, right? We mentioned that his holiness is manifested in love and it's manifested in wrath. And there's therefore his beneficent, loving presence manifested towards people and there's also the wrathful presence of God. You're always going to be to some extent in the presence of God. The question is which of those two things are true? Does Jesus Himself ever talk about such things? Well, of course he does. Say, even in Luke nineteen twenty seven, and speaking of what's how he'd invited people to come, he had invited people all over to come to his wedding feast. He had invited people to participate in his kingdom work. But what it says here in verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. It doesn't say, take them to some room somewhere where I can't see them. I don't want to see you put them to death. No, he says, bring them right here in front of my face and I want you to slay them there. That's the very picture that we have here in Revelation 14. See, the thing about the wrath of God is it involves God's own personal activity in doing it. His wrath of God is such that it is not content merely for something that is ten-step removed from him, some sort of process by which he does not see and is not personally involved. It is rather something that demands his own personal activity. Ezekiel nine four is a, a great picture of this. I think we were in Ezekiel 9 previously to talk about the idea of those who have the mark and those who doesn't. This is the, the picture is, is already established for us and, and Revelation is, is just building upon that. But anyways, in Ezekiel 9.4 it says, The Lord said to this angel, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Basically the righteous, God's people. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children, and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And there's this idea then of the wrath of God being poured out without mercy upon those who do not have his mark on him. And it's a fearsome picture. Well, thus far we have said that hell happens in the wrathful presence of God. But I'd just take it one more step further. So far from hell being defined as the absence of God, I think the best way to describe it is that hell is the wrathful presence of God. We saw this, I think, in Revelation 6.15. Who those people so afraid of? Do you remember? The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us. What from? From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from his face of this lamb, his wrathful face. That is the thing that we most desire to be hidden from. And we'd prefer giant rocks to fall on us than to have to be in the presence of the wrathful lamb. The great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I do not mean to say that there are other aspects of hell, but if this central aspect of heaven, we all say heaven could be streets of gold and it could have all these riches but if if our lord is not there it's not really heaven that's true the essence of it is the beneficent presence of god among us what then is hell there'll be other accoutrements certainly terrible ones but then the greatest most central aspect of it is the wrathful presence of god that's what makes it hell third and finally hell is forever you know virtually anything can be endured for a season for a time but surely one of the most terrible aspects of hell is that there is no limitation whatsoever it says in verse uh, revelation 14 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And it's important for us to understand that because, you see, there's various ways you can try to, <laughs> there's a w- word, uh, air conditioned hell, right? I mentioned as the canary's not quite dead, but the canary's kind of on its last leg and, and fall into the ground of the cage. Uh, it's, it's a process not of, of saying there is no hell, that no one's in hell, but of air-conditioning hell. And and one way to do that is to say it doesn't last forever. That it is only for a limited time. And then their lives are extinguished. And we know there are some very popular evangelicals who have fallen into this idea and have been promoting it. But brethren, I want us to know that that is not what the word of God says. The word of God makes it utterly clear that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they... Have no rest day or night. Now, one of the objections to eternal torment, eternal conscious torment, is simply this How can sins that are committed within the scope of our little lifetimes here on earth possibly merit an eternal sentence? Well, first of all, we'd have to say that there is no necessary relationship between the time of the sin and its punishment. Any one little sin, even a sin that takes just a a second to commit, that merits eternal hell. So, you know, there's no establishment of any kind of relationship of time that we have in Scripture. But I guess the more important thing is the, the question of whom you are sinning against. just think about the hugely different punishments that even in this world, this wicked world, we meet out for killing. Okay, you can kill some different mammals, okay? If it's a rat, what happens? Nothing. You can kill a rat all day long. And nothing happens to you. There's no punishment. But if it's a person, it's the death sentence or life in prison. You see? depending on the value of the life, the one who is being sinned against, the punishment varies incredibly. And the, the thing, now that of course the world doesn't recognize this, but the great thing about the value of human life is because it is in the image of God. Just the mere fact that all the billions of us, even though we're fallen, we still carry this image of God. We sort of kind of look like God, and therefore we are of this great value that if you lay your hand on one of us, your, your, Your life ought to be forfeit. So what about God? Of how much more value is God than any human being? How much? How can you quantify it? Is it just merely additive? Is it if you... Remember, each and every one of the six, seven billion people on this earth, they all bear the image of God, and therefore their lives all demand the life of their murderer. So, do you just add up all the human life that has ever been? So, is it just maybe 10, 20 billion times more valuable than than human life? No, I think it's. Or is it just? Is it exponentially greater than that? No, I, I don't think so. See, the thing about God is that He's infinite. The thing about God is that He's infinitely holy. The thing of God is that His being is infinite. That He is the Creator. There is an infinite distance between the creator and, and any creature. And if he's infinite, then how is that punishment going to work on someone who's finite? There's only so much punishment we can receive at any one time. What does that mean? What does that entail? You're sinning against this infinite God. That means that there's an infinite time component. And that means eternity. In order for justice to be done on sinners... It must happen over eternity. At what point can you possibly say that this sin against an infinite being, this sin against this creator, has been paid in full? When you're talking about a finite being. Well, that's why the infinite and eternal sentence is perfectly just. Now the thing about it is then... It's infinite, and that's known from the very beginning. You know, there aren't many things that are true about Dante's picture, but one thing that is true is a sign. All you who enter here abandon hope, and that's true. Because it is known to the inhabitants of hell that they'll never, ever get out. And hope to be extinguished is a dreadful thing. So many things can be endured as long as there's hope. I think of the American POWs in, in the Vietnam War. And the North Vietnamese made hell on earth as best as they knew how, complete with what they called hell holes, these places that dug into the earth, these tiny little places where they, they, they pushed someone in and, and closed them up. But even still, hope was not extinguished. There was always a hope of rescue. And even for those who were there for two, three, four, five years, John McCain was there for five years. And yet he ends up coming back and serving as a U.S. senator and running for president. There was always hope in being rescued. But in hell, there's no hope. There's no hope whatsoever. And that last bit, then, that would enable you to perhaps endure it some extent is fully gone it is a hopeless situation because it is eternal and also i'd say we have to remember what it is specifically said here is that they have no rest day or night no rest we do not sufficiently value rest rest in its fullness that's what we the redeemed get but the damned will not rest I mentioned last week with uh, the illustration I used with regard to the singing at a local sixth form. And I said, not that I said it was a good idea that they weren't singing, but I said it was a a picture that only the redeemed actually opened their mouth to singing and the rest of them refused. And you could see then it's in, in some element of the truth that only the redeemed can sing the song of the redeemed. Well, likewise, I would say in this, in this time in which the world has so turned its back on the Word of God, and this nation in particular, who is, is remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy? The world isn't. They're out there working. You can pass them. My neighbors are doing yard work. I don't know. What, maybe yours are washing their cars or doing something else. Maybe they're just going to work. They don't care, they don't value rest. Well, I think it's actually a poignant picture of only the redeemed are actually given rest. We are given this great, uh, this great picture, this great foretaste of the rest that we have in heaven by having the Sabbath day, only we get it. The people that are in rebellion against God, they don't have any rest. They don't really have it here, and they're certainly not going to have it in hell. No rest, no element of it, day nor night. says in Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, how do we apply these things to ourselves? I, again, must apologize for the fact that it is impossible to do these things justice. How can you possibly convey this thing that has never been seen And furthermore, of which we as God's people know that we're not going to experience this for ourselves. So it's a little bit even hard for us to imagine. I say this all the time with regard to to Jonathan Edwards because people think that he was the greatest preacher of hell. And I say, no, he was a much better preacher of heaven. Much better. And because, you see, there is this wonderful advantage with regard to his preaching on heaven because he knew he was going there. And sometimes it seemed that that veil was paper thin, and he could see right through it, and he did, could describe what he knew that he himself would soon enough experience. But he had this great, this great handicap with regard to preaching in hell, be, preaching of hell, because he knew that he was not going there. Well, I only asked then that the Lord might add to that which was said. But my first application is that we ought to fear God. Because that's the way this chapter begins. That's how it's framed. All this description about hell is framed with the command to fear God. That's what we are told in verse 7. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Fear God. When we hear about the wrath of God, it should make us fear God. That's what happened previously in Revelation 11.11. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, that's the two witnesses, and they stood on their feet, and what great fear fell on those who saw them, and rightly so. And there, as I mentioned in verse 7, fear God and give glory to him. Or even as back in in Acts, some of you may know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, those who who claim to have sold this piece of land and to give all the They wanted to make a great show of their piety and and giving all this money to the church. But in fact, they kept back some for themselves and they were lying to God. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So what? Great fear came upon all the church and those who heard these things. Great fear came upon all the church. When you come into contact, when you see some element of the justice and wrath of God, you should fear God. We live in a time in which there is no fear of God. We used to have a word, a God-fearing man, something that I, I haven't, I don't know if I've actually heard someone say that, this wicked, blasphemous generation has no fear of God. There's nothing sacred. And this weak church in which we find ourselves, the church as a whole cravenly making any compromise just to get a seat at the table with the, the powerful, willing to do anything the culture tells them, completely at their beck and call Having institutions to study what the culture is doing just so they can ape it more effectively. There's no element of the orthodox truth that is not on the table for uh, willing for negotiation. If it's too offensive to the culture, then we'll get rid of it. If there's something that needs to be added that you'd like to hear, then we'll add it. We need to learn from this passage the fear of God. We need to learn what Abraham did. In Genesis 22, you remember this most powerful moment, this picture pointing us forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but also of God's relationship with Abraham. What does it tell us? Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son as he was commanded. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from him. See that? Didn't just say that now I know that you love me in some sort of sappy and superficial kind of way. Now I know that you fear me. You tremble at my word. You do those things that I tell you. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his only son at the word of God. Sometimes we're not even willing to discipline our children. lest we incur their displeasure. We must learn what he learned. The fear of God. That so makes everything else to pale. That the displeasure of this world. That the persecution that the, the Antichrist can... can him pour out on us does not mean anything why because we fear god and this of course has an element for us in christian and our sanctification as christians and uh, second corinthians 7 1 says therefore having these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of god This is speaking to Christians. This is not speaking to those outside. This is to those who have the promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Why? Because we still have this filthiness. We are justified in the sight of God. We are there is nothing remaining there for us to do whatsoever. But in our flesh we still have all this filthiness on us. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be cleansed by the washing of the word and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God, because that's the only way it works. That's why I just don't get this uh, movement. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. A movement uh, towards antinomianism in the church. And and churches that are like that, they're so very casual in the way they interact with God. God's just their buddy. And the Marine Corps would say they're smoking and joking with him, just uh, speaking of, uh, with him in very informal terms and having a very casual approach to the law of God makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, therefore since we are receiving a kingdom, speaking to Christians, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And when you read a chapter like this and you see he's a consuming fire, when you see his wrath of God being poured out on sinners, that means that we should have godly fear when we relate to such a God. Secondly, we must not forget our real problem. I've mentioned this uh, false theology of George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis, of course, sadly picked up on it in his idea of hell that we find in the the great divorce and also in mere Christianity. That hell is basically a sort of situation that you put yourself into. God's not even involved, but you in your own self-centeredness, you don't want to let go of your sins, you don't want to receive God. You could walk into heaven any time you wanted, but now of you, of your own free choice, you have kind of consigned yourself to a prison And in your own self-centeredness and in your own sin, you're in a downward spiral that makes things worse and worse. And that, over eternity, is hell. But I need to remind us that that's not our real problem. You see, our real problem is not ourselves. Again, if our problem was ourselves or with other human beings, if our problem was horizontal, we could fix it. There would always be the possibility of fixing it. And that, by the way, that is at the heart of the George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis system. It is, in essence, something that you can fix yourself. Remember, the whole theology was based on a rejection of the penal substitutionary atonement. So there is a way in which that you, of your own free will, using your own resources, can get yourself out of this mess and make it to heaven. Some do and some don't. But it's within your power. Well, that's not the case. Hebrews 10.30 makes it very clear. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. And in verse 31, the famous words, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Tell me, when have you read C.S. Lewis and thought to yourself it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? That idea is utterly absent. And from all those who follow him, and there are many who do, that idea is utterly absent. Our problem, ladies and gentlemen, is not ourselves. Our problem is not we do, what we do to ourselves, however however terrible it is. Are not our own addictions, our slaveries, our isolations and alienations, that is not the real problem. The real problem is a holy God. We are sinners in the hands of of a holy and angry God. That is our problem. And therefore, the warning must be very clear. The warning has got to be clear. You know, it's a funny thing to me that basically you can apologize for hell and say, well, God has just given you what you want. That's that's what it is. He's not doing anything. You're just there and you have done this thing to yourself and you crawled into yourself and if you want to live like that, fine, but God's not doing it to you. Now it's, it would be like, uh, but the question is, is that really a clear articulation? Maybe it's true in some tiny, tiny little sense about this big. That there's an element, of course, of which hell is self-chosen. But is that the, the substance of the warning? How clear is it that we, the warning is made? Because what it says in Ezekiel 33 is that we've got to warn them. Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the, the land take a man from their territory and make them their watchmen, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own, own head. It's his fault. At least he was warned. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But... If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, true enough, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. Now if we go around, I don't know, imagine going to the Ninevites If uh, Jonah had come to the Ninevites and he said, Yet 40 days, and you Ninevites will be given just what you want, freedom from God. How clear is that warning? How clear is it if such things have been said to Sodom and Gomorrah? Now it says in verse, uh, going on in Ezekiel, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, and that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. It is our duty to warn those. In very clear. No uncertain terms. That the wrath of God hangs upon them. Until the point at which they repent. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our third and final application is just to turn, turn, turn. That's the point of that. When you hear these things, how can you not repent? How is that not upon us all as we think of these things? How do we not want to turn away from our sin and turn, turn towards Christ in a perfect embrace of loving obedience? Because that's where the section carries on in Ezekiel 33. That's exactly what it says. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say of our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? You see, there's a warning. The wrath of God hangs upon you. You are sinners. And the sword is coming and he's going, you're going to be sent to hell forever. And then they say, what are we going to do? They're pining away. What can we, how can we live? Now there comes the gospel. Say to them as I live says the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Or why should you die O house of Israel? That's the use of all this. That's God's intended use of telling us about hell. Of giving us the warning. That we might fear him. And also that we might turn, that we might repent. We might repent. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Doesn't mean in the slightest that he won't do it. But he gives us this warning so that we might repent. The warning, while we have life and breath, the day of salvation is yet here. We can put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved.